Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 30, Systems of Government. In this episode, I'm going to look at the different systems of government that are used in various countries, either throughout history or, or currently in the world, and discuss the various sources of power and means of exercising that power. The type of systems I look at include the various types of democracies, oligarchies, dictatorships, monarchies, autocracies, and so on. This is my first episode on political science, and I thought that this would be a good one to start off with because it sort of sets a basis for the different basic types of governments that exist, and uh, governments are obviously a very important topic in political science, so it seems a good thing to start off with. So first of all, before I get into the classifications of different sources of uh, governmental power, we need to look at what is a government or what makes up government. Now, this is a controversial and complicated topic, but basically, for the purposes of this episode, uh, we can consider government to be a body of people and associated organizations that control a state. Now, a state is also a controversial subject, so for our purposes, we'll take a simplification that a state is basically a country, be it small or large. So Russia is a state, Zimbabwe is a state, USA is a state, and so on. So a government is the body of people and the associated organizations that control a given state or country. A government makes laws, interprets laws, enforces the laws, maintains order, sets policies, arbitrates internal conflicts, and does that sort of thing. So a government includes you know, the prime minister or the president or the monarch or the dictator or whoever, uh, the parliament if there is one, the, the ruling party, and also things like the military, the police, court system, civil servants. All of that is part of the government. So it refers both to particular people and also to a sort of a generic concept of an institutional structure. Uh, there's one other important distinction to make between a government and the government. A particular government refers to a particular uh, set of people and perhaps a party that is governing a state, country, at a particular time. So you might have... Uh, governments are sometimes named after, peop- after people, like Hitler's government in Nazi Germany or um, Bush's government in the USA for example, um, or, or they might be named after the political parties, or the, the socialist government, or the left-wing government, or something like that, the communist government. Th- that is a particular uh, structure and group of people that are, uh, with a set of policies and ideals and whatever that are, governing, that are governing a country at a particular time. The government is a broader concept which refers to the institutions of government as a whole, regardless of who in particular or what individuals or parties are exercising those powers and inhabiting those institutions at that particular time. So, for example, the government of the U.S. stays the same, regardless of who is president or what party controls Congress and so on. There is a federal government as a whole, which then is sort of controlled or uh, taken uh, over periodically, in in a sense, or taken control of by a, a given political party or individual president, which is then referred to as a particular government. Another example might be, maybe you talk about the government of China, which was originally an imperial government, then there was a revolution, and then you had um, republican government, and then later on there was a civil war, and you had a communist government. So those were particular governments, be it imperial, republican, or communist, but throughout the whole period, well, more or less, you had a concept of the Chinese government, the overall federal structure that was governing the area we roughly call China and the associated institutions and structures and so on. So there is a distinction between those two. So in this episode, we're really talking about the government as a whole, not a particular government. We're talking about broad conceptions of different ways of governing countries, not you know particular policies or, or the individual uh, choices of, of this president or that political party or something like that. Okay, so having defined government, we'll now have a quick word on classification and uh, how we're going to deal with that, because obviously classifying political systems or social systems or economic systems is 
difficult because there's a lot of overlap and imprecise imprecision and so on. So each government is unique in many aspects, but there are also certain common features and attributes which we can use to group states into rough, fuzzy, overlapping classes, but, but still useful categorizations. There are many different ways to do this, so there's no one right way of classifying governments or political systems. There are different ways which may be more or less useful for a given purpose or a given context. So, so some of these different classification systems could include the de jure political status or the de facto political practice of the nation. De jure means by law, like what's written down in the constitution or whatever. De, de facto means what actually happens. So de jure, you could be a democracy, but de facto, you could be a dictatorship, for example. Um, you could classify nations by either of those two situations. You could also classify them by the degree of democratic freedom or the degree of centralization of political power versus decentralization to local governments, the size of the state or the government degree of repression, and so on. In this episode, though, we're going to focus on the type and extent of political power. So that's sort of who holds the power, how the power is exercised, the power of government, and the de- sort of the degree to which the government exercises power or intervention in the, in the state or society as a whole. This is perhaps the most basic way of categorizing governments. Well, in later episodes, we'll look at, say, de- degree of democratic freedom or uh, centralization of political power and the issue of federalism, which are sort of more specialized issues. This is the most broad classification of governments just by type and extent of power, basically. Okay, so let's get on to the actual classification. There are uh, five broad classification uh, categories that I've put into this episode. There are different ways you could do it. Once again, this is not the single right way. Uh, These are anarchy, democracy, oligarchy, monarchy, and autocracy. And within each of those, there's a number of subcategories, which can be rather different from each other. But in each of those five broad categories, there are overall similarities. Oh, just a note on terminology. Basically, archi or krasi, that uh, suffix there is, is derives from the Greek, which basically means like rule or power or something like that. The, the word itself refers the each of the category titles, gives you a clue as to what type of uh, power it is or, or how it's exercised. So, anarchy, a... Anarchy, which is basically a meaning the absence or lack of. So anarchy is the absence of power or the absence of control and means essentially lack of government. You might think that anarchy is anarchy. There's there's no real uh, distinction there, but there are actually different forms of anarchy or at least forms of lack of government that I've categorized, which I'll talk about. Those are relatively rare in history because they tend to be unstable and uh, replaced by some more, more centralized government. Next one is democracy. This is demo referring to the people and democracy, sort of rule, power. So rule by the people, basically, is what democracy means. And there are a couple of types of that. That's historically been rather rare, but obviously much more common in, say, the 19th, 20th centuries. Most nations nowadays are de jure, that is, by law democracies, but in practice the degree of actual democratic engagement and freedom of speech and so on differs. Next one is oligarchy. So oli meaning a few or a small number, and garchy power. So oligarchy basically means rule by the few. Not by the one, but by the few. So oligarchy is sort of halfway in between democracy and monarchy, which I'll talk about in a second. Democracy is ruled by many, or ruled by the people. Monarchy or dictatorship is ruled by one. Oligarchy is ruled by a few people, so it, it can include where there's a single ruling party in power or when a small elite governs and so on. But we'll go through those different categories. There are many different types of oligarchy. The next category that I've already alluded to is monarchy. Mon or mono meaning one, anarchy, rule, power. So basically rule by the one is what monarchy means, or rule by a single person. That it has been the most common method of rule or form of government throughout history. Relatively rare nowadays, though. The final category that I have is autocracy which also sort of meaning self and grassy rules, so basically rule by self or self-power. Um, 
will derive from... It's a little bit hard to exactly get the sense of this one. Monarchy is often classified as a type of autocracy, but I've separated them out because I think there's enough of a distinction there to warrant a, a distinction. Autocracy is basically the other forms of single-person rule that are not monarchies. So they include things like military rule and dictatorships and so on, authoritarian and totalitarian states, which I'll, which I'll talk about. So, so that's the, the five broad categories in order of basically going from less central control to more central control. Anarchy, democracy, oligarchy, monarchy, and autocracy. Just to give you a broad overview. All right, so starting back in anarchy, I'm going to go through the, the subcategories and give some examples of states that fit into these uh, ca- specific categories and, and talk about some of their attributes. So first of all, oclocracy. Uh, I may pronounce that wrong. It's spelled O-C-H-L-O-Cracy. This is ruled by the mob, broad government structure. It's an important sort of category or concept to know about. So an oclocracy could be an actual rule by a mob or intimidation of legitimate authorities by a mob. Generally associated with herd behavior, irrationality, uh, madness of crowds, that sort of thing. It, it's a problematic form of government because it's highly unstable and often gives rise to autocracies or um, other less savory forms of government. It's also at the risk of tyrannies of the majority, um, poor decision-making, hasty decision-making, oppression of minority groups, retributive justice, like lynchings and that sort of thing. Once again, seldom that a a state for any significant period of time is governed by an oclocracy, but it is an important concept because uh, we can use it to understand situations like black lynchings, for example, uh, in the southern U.S. I mean, lynchings happen in many places, but this is just an example that people are familiar with in the southern U.S., say, 19th, early 20th century. Salem witch trial uh, back in the 17th century, or witch trials in in many uh, places in Europe around the same time as well, would be another example. Many peasant and worker revolts throughout history, especially in places like China or throughout medieval Europe, perhaps slave revolts as well, uh, but but especially parent, pe- peasant and worker revolts, worker revolts in the 19th century Europe would be another example, would, could also be categorised as ruled by the mob. Once again, often not for very long, but the the mob can, can be a catalyst towards, say, a revolution or um, a, a change in power or something like that. So that that's not exactly a form of government, because it's really the, the least organised, the most chaotic form of governments or a, a government that, that there is. But it's important to know. So next subcategory I'm going to talk about is isocracy, which um, iso meaning equal, so sort of equal rule or equal power is what isocracy means, rule by equals. This is where all citizens have equal political power. I don't really know of any examples of this, uh, nor do I really can say how it would work in practice. I just included for for, com- for completeness. Now I'm going to talk about the third subcategory, libertarian socialism. So this sounds like socialism, which is uh, I've actually put in the autocracy category, or can sometimes be in the democracy category, depending on what type of socialism it is. By the way, don't worry too much about what socialism is if you don't know what it is, because we'll probably have a whole episode on socialism and communism, because that's a very important topic. But socialism is basically concerned with equality of various sorts political and economic. But anyway, libertarian socialism is not the same thing as socialism, so don't get too confused. Libertarian socialism is basically a form of anarchism. It's non-hierarchical, non-bureaucratic, stateless society without private property. So uh, generally the governments in a libertarian socialist country or state occurs through decentralized direct democracy, so people voting directly on sort of councils, things like citizens' assemblies, through trade unions, workers', ca- workers councils, that sort of thing. Um, so this is not the same as ochlocracy. It's not like absence of rule or, or total um, mob rule or something like that. There are institutions, but they're localized and decentralized and voluntary. So as I said, things like citizens' assemblies or trade unions or a local council or something like that. And people voluntarily uh, you know, turn up and, and directly engage with that sort of rule. So these sort of countries tend to be unstable. None of it lasted for very long. But there are some examples in history. So the Israeli kibbutz, for example, I think there are a few of those around today, but they are more popular around the 60s and 70s. Basically small 
socialist communities that existed in Israel. A few hundred people were generally agricultural communities, once again, that that were voluntary and had decentralized direct democratic decision-making and so on. The Paris Commune that existed in 1870 uh, for a couple of months in in Paris uh, was sort of like a a revolutionary state that was run by workers' councils and trade unions and so on. It didn't last for very long. There are a couple of other examples as well. The Free Territory in the Ukraine that existed in the early 1920s, I think around the time of the Russian Revolution, before it was invaded by, I'm not exactly sure who invaded, probably the Soviet Union. That was once again a, a, a significant area of the Ukraine which was governed by citizens' assemblies or farmers' um, associations, workers' councils and that sort of thing, with no real central government. And Revolutionary Catalonia, which was a, a section of uh, Spain that existed for a couple of years during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, uh, which once again was run along libertarian socialist lines with decentralised local direct democratic rule and, and absence of private property. Most of those don't last for very long, and neither did any of these states, uh, the Free Territory, Paris Commune, or Revolution Catalonia, last for very long, because they tend to be invaded by an external power, basically, and they tend to arise in sort of revolutionary, unstable circumstances. Okay, uh, so that's libertarian socialism, and the final case of anarchy that I want to talk about is anarcho-capitalism. This is a... So anarcho-capitalism is sort of associated with libertarian socialism because they're both forms of anarchism, like political philosophies. There's no political philosophy associated with ochlocracy or rule by the mob. That's the total absence of of any rule. But libertarian socialism and anarcho-capitalism both have ideologies or or political uh, schools of thought associated with them. But anarcho-capitalism disagrees with libertarian socialism basically on the role of private property. So anarcho-capitalist states are sort of direct democratic in some sense, individual sovereignty, decentralized, like libertarian socialism, but the one big difference is that uh, they have private property. In fact, the general idea of anarcho-capitalism is that everything, including state law enforcement, courts, money, roads, everything you would normally associate with a state is actually provided through private contract and uh, monetary transactions. So, I mean, the the big risk of this sort of state is how long a society would be able to last before some powerful individual or company or family or something like that establish their own government through force, you know. So if you have competing law enforcement agencies contracting with individuals or uh, principalities or, or like local areas or whatever to uh, provide law enforcement or legal judicial facilities and so on as prisons and so on, as anarcho-capitalists will argue, uh, that may work, but the question is how long will it work before one of them becomes more powerful than the others and just decides to take over through force? So perhaps because of this sort of risk of a de facto state, perhaps a monarchy or something, being set up in, in the stead of an anarcho-capitalist society. This sort of government is really rare throughout history. It hasn't really ever existed in, in its proper form. But there have been a couple of societies or uh, areas w- which have been argued to have exhibited many characteristics of anarcho-capitalism. The, the two common examples are medieval Iceland around the, the 11th, uh, 12th centuries, where so law, judicial services, also many things like land and so on, were traded with money and through voluntary transactions and so on. So, it, it, yeah, it was very commercial in that sense, but still voluntary without this overarching government to, to uh, impose any of its laws on people. So that, that was considered to be a sort of a proto-anarcho-capitalist regime by or, or uh, society by, by some people. Another example that's sometimes given is the American Old West around the 19th century, where, once again, there was a large absence of central authority and um, justice law and, and currency and so on were... Were, and any other goods and services too were provided on a voluntary basis by monetary transactions between individuals or groups and so on. Okay, so that's anarchy. So just to recap the different classes, ochlocracy, rule by mob, isocracy, theoretical rule by equals, then you've got libertarian socialism and anarcho-capitalism. All of those forms of anarchy are quite rare and generally don't turn up too much, but need to be understood because uh, they are important classes of states and something that people sometimes reference. Okay, moving on to the next uh, category now, democracy. 
Now, there are two basic types of democracy, direct democracy and representative democracy, or also called a republic. Direct democracy is when people vote directly on policy initiatives and they involve, are involved directly with decision-making. Sometimes they also sit directly on, uh, uh, on courts or like act directly as judges. So instead of having a judge and or jury, a direct democracy might have a very large group of people, of, of group of citizens deciding the case directly. This is what happened in ancient Greece, for example. Uh, so, you know, you might have a large group... In a direct democracy, you have a large group of people or perhaps uh, everyone being able to cast a vote for uh, passing executive decisions, making laws or uh, electing or dismissing officials, conducting trials and that sort of thing. It's very difficult to apply direct democracy. I don't know if there are any examples of this. Uh, to apply it in a large heterogeneous state like the US or China or India, for example, because it's it's just too hard to... to manage logistically and the more people you have it's harder to make decisions get all the votes in and so on and the more heterogeneous you are the more the state is the more disagreements and problems you tend to have which can um, lead to uh, inability to make effective and rapid decisions uh, but but this has been direct democracy has and is applied successfully in relatively small uh, states so for example ancient Athens had a direct democracy so remember most states nowadays are republics or representative democracies People often associate democracy with Athens or ancient Greece, because uh, Athens wasn't the only democratic city-state in Greece, but it's the canonical example. People often associate uh, Athens with democracy, but the democracy that they had was direct democracy, which is very different to representative or republican democracy, which is what most uh, states in the world now have. So that is an important distinction to draw. So some other examples of direct democracy include Switzerland, not so much on the national level, but especially at local level. Switzerland is very decentralised, and their political system differs between the different cantons, which are like, sort of like states, and uh, local councils and so on. Uh, it, there's a lot of complexity there, uh, if you want to read more into it, which we don't have time to get into in this episode, but there is a large element and large degree of direct democracy in, in Switzerland. And also some states and counties in the United States have a large element of direct democracy. For example, in California, they're often voting, uh, like there's a plebiscite of popular vote on a particular law or proposal that, that's put forward. That is an example of direct democracy. So once again, direct democracy is often something that is not completely adhered to in the pure sense, but elements of it are present to a greater or less degree in, in various states. But once again, it does tend to be rare because it's hard to apply in large, larger states. So uh, the, the second form of democracy, that which I've been mentioning, is representative democracy or a republic. So in this, the people do not directly vote on things or do not directly appoint individuals that do not directly conduct trials. Um, the only thing they do is basically vote on the government or vote on their representatives and uh, perhaps, you know, they, they might discuss political issues in the media and so on, uh, or they may lobby uh, and, and uh, talk to their representatives, but they do not govern directly themselves. So government itself is directed by the people through their chosen representatives, or at least a significant portion of the people. There are many examples of Republican government, so many classical Greek city-states also had this uh, this form of government. The Roman Republic was a uh, well had elements of direct democracy, but was also uh, well it was called a republic in in the sense that it had uh, elected representative officials. Uh, Renaissance Italian city-states in say the you know the 15th 16th centuries that sort of period, many of those were republics. Hanseatic League basically those were sort of uh, Scandinavian Northern German city-states, similar to the Italian uh, city-states. The Dutch Republic, in around like 17th, 18th centuries, was a representative government. The United States of America and most other modern democratic states are republics, uh, in the sense that they're representative democracies. And there are many subtypes of democ- uh, sorry, of, of uh, representative democracies, parliamentary, presidential, semi-presidential, and some other hybrid mixed systems. But the, that is a sort of a... There's a whole sort of subfield of 
research which involves comparing parliamentary to presidential systems. So parliamentary systems kind of like what they have in Britain and many other European countries where you have a parliament and a prime minister. Presidential system is what they have in the US and many other Latin American countries where you have a you don't have a prime minister but you have a president and then a parliament which is sort of separate from the president. But I won't go into the details of those now because as I said there's a, a whole lot of fear and research related to that. But they are both subtypes of a republic, a representative democracy which are which are uh, both distinct from the direct democracy. And republics have been relatively rare throughout history until around the 19th century. Mostly before then, they were just, as you might have seen from my examples, relatively small city-states or small republics, because uh, then any larger areas tended to be, uh, tended to be too hard to, to aggregate uh, individual... Uh, to aggregate, say, votes and things like that uh, together to form a, a stable uh, representative system before the uh, development of more modern technologies which have permitted mass representative states and now the republic is the most common political system in the world okay so that's all the democracies covered now we're going to move on to oligarchies which is ruled by the few or a small elite but that elite can be different between different countries there are many types of oligarchies and they're quite a common quite common throughout history and still relatively common today first one i want to talk about is aristocracy or plutarchy now aristocracy technically means my rule by the the best or rule by the excellent but uh, and Plutarchy technically means rule by the rich, but generally they're more or less the same thing. So an aristocracy is often an elite, upper-class, wealthy, landed gentry or something like that. Plutarchy, just rich people. They could be businessmen or landowners or whoever. So I'm grouping these together. Aristocracy and Plutarchy is basically the same thing. It's ruled by a small number of elite, wealthy individuals. So aristocracies and Plutarchies can be stable, but they can also suffer from internal power struggles between the wealthy individuals, which can eventually lead to them becoming monarchies or autocracies, depending on how it goes. Or sometimes they can, uh, sometimes an aristocracy can be uh, sort of a stepping stone onto becoming a more democratic state, which is kind of what happened in a lot of European states. They started off as more centralized, or were at least centralized at one period in time, and then became more of an aristocracy, Plutarchy, and then eventually became a democracy as the 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 uh, the power became. Uh, spread across more and more of the, the population. So there are many examples of uh, aristocracies. Many ancient and medieval city-states and republics were in practice aristocracies. That is, by law perhaps, or technically everyone had a vote, or every citizen had a vote, but in practice, the say, uh, Roman Republic is a good example of this, in practice, the, a small wealthy elite really controlled things. Medieval feudal states, and also the Tokugawa shogunate and uh, the Zhou dynasty in, uh, in China, which was... Uh, around the middle of the, the first millennium BC, so quite a while ago. Tokugawa shogunate is like 16th century Japan, around then, 17th century. 18th century England as well was a, was a Plutarchy aristocracy with the rule by a small elite of the aristocracy and so on as the power was moving away from the king towards the England becoming more democratic in the, say, 19th century. But going back to the medieval feudal states, uh, so most of uh, the feudal states you think of in medieval Europe, you know, England, France, Spain, Germany, those sort of places where you had the, the knights and the, the lords above them and the barons and then the king and the peasants below them all and so on. This is an example of aristocracy because although they had king, most of them had kings by, by law, in practice most, most power was decentralized to, to a, a, a small elite of, of landed uh, gentry who were the, the nobles and the knights and so on. So that was very common in medieval Europe. But as I said, it also existed in Japan uh, during the Tokugawa period in China, in the Jodhism, in some other periods as well, and it's existed in various other states throughout history which have been more or less feudal. Okay, so then uh, that's an aristocracy or a plutarchy. The next one I want to talk about is a technocracy, which is my personal favourite of all the political systems. Technocracy meaning ruled by experts. Now, this is where decision-makers are selected based upon how knowledgeable and skillful they are in their particular technical field. 
or their their field of expertise to make dis- to to be effective decision makers and policy makers and so on. In practice, it'll be the government or state is ruled by scientists, engineers, economists, maybe some judges and legal issues and so on. So people who are experts in their particular fields. This form of government is relatively rare in history. It's never existed in its pure form. Basically, you have governments that you don't have any government that has been uh, manifestly technocratic. I don't think any government self-describes has self-described itself as technocratic, largely because these sort of states face severe legitimacy problems. Because the, these experts tend not to be well, they're, they're obviously not democratic, so they can't appeal to legitimacy there. But they also can't appeal to legitimacy based on like divine right or based simply on uh, brute force or, or uh, wealth of the people ruling as an aristocracy or uh, a monarchy or even a military state can. The experts are not military leaders or people who have the most money in most cases. So that's perhaps why these sort of states tend to be rare. It's, it's that there's very little prospect for them coming about unless some existing state decides to become technocratic in the way they govern. Uh, and that's so that's generally why you have some states that are lean towards technocratic but are not pure technocratic. So technocracy was influential in the West during the Great Depression because it was perceived that the more uh, perhaps populist or the more uh, representative form of democracy, the traditional form, had had failed and there was more need for intervention by experts. Also, uh, Chile in the early 1970s under Allende, who was nominally a socialist, but his uh, socialist regime was particularly technocratic in the way they went about things or sort of began to go about things. They they even had a control centre that they set up. I don't think it was ever used because they were kicked out of power quite quite early, but where you had like a whole bunch of computer systems hooked up to um, to, to receiving information from factories and other uh, industries all over the country and with the, the swivel chairs for easy decision-making and, and planning and so on, sort of very sci-fi looking. So that's probably perhaps the best example of a technocratic government, Allende's Chile. Other socialist governments throughout the 20th century have also been more or less technocratic in the way that they talk about, you know, central planning and experts making decisions and so on. The modern Chinese government, the communist government in China, is, is also sometimes referred to as, as technocratic because many of the, the top people have engineers engineering or science backgrounds, and uh, there's an emphasis in the state on planning, carefully planning of, of overall economic and uh, infrastructure objectives and, and uh, pursuing science and that sort of thing. Technocracy doesn't have to be socialist-oriented, though. There are uh, other examples might include where uh, Western economic experts were, and uh, especially economists, but other experts as well, were hired to restructure the Soviet states, say, uh, Russia and Poland and so on after they were after communism collapsed and they were reforming so th- those sort of early transitional governments could be more or less described as technocratic perhaps all right so that's technocracy next is a uh, critarchy ruled by judges this is a quite sort of an obscure form of government but it's an interesting one to consider this is when a relatively small number of judicial experts or judges governs according to pre-existing laws so uh, the, the key aspect of a critarchy is that they they don't generally make new law they interpret old law and govern according to pre-existing customary law sometimes statutory law so sometimes it's written down but often it's customary so the two examples of this I'm most familiar with are the, the rule of judges in ancient Israel so you know you've got the book of judges in the bible that was during the period when Israel was run by a bunch of judges legal experts who applied existing law. Another example is the Islamic Courts Union in Mon Somalia, particularly around, I think, 2006, a couple of years back. The Islamic Courts Union had a lot of power. They controlled a fair bit of Somalia. I don't think they're as powerful anymore, but basically they, they run uh, the, their area, a, a bunch of judges or Islamic legal scholars who ran their area according to their interpretation of, of customary Somalian plus Islamic law. Uh, countries that are run more or less according to Sharia law, that is Islamic law, uh, can sort of be described as critarchies as well, because they're uh, because the the more uh, solidly they adhere to uh, 
you know, strict Islamic law or interpretation of Islamic law, then the, the more influence and control judges will have, uh, Islamic scholars and so on will have over the political power. But most most countries that nowadays that are controlled, or even historically that are, you know, so-called under Sharia law, there's still a great deal of uh, discretionary power or overall control by a uh, an elite or overall arching government, imperial or nationalistic or whatever, or socialist sometimes, which is separate from the Islamic scholars. So just, in other words, just because a country says it's, you know, operating according to Sharia law doesn't mean it's a critarchy, because often that's not completely so. Next one I want to talk about is a diarchy, which is basically the same as a monarchy, except in, instead of having one ruler, you have two rulers, hence die, diarchy, rule by two. Uh, usually diarchs hold their position for life and pass their responsibilities on to their children or other family members when they die. So di- diarchy can be a stable political system in uh, certain situations whereby you basically... Keep one monarch in, keep the state in check from the excesses or uh, idiosyncrasies of a single ruler by having two rulers simultaneously. There are a number of examples of this. The Roman Republic was a diarchy because you had two consuls who uh, who were had equal power and were in office simultaneously. Classical Sparta as well had two monarchs, well, two monarchs, so it was a diarchy, uh, which were hereditary. A number of different medieval and early modern European states were dual monarchies where basically you had, often it was the the king and his queen at the same time were, were both uh, the reigning monarchs at a given time. Perhaps one of the most common examples of this were um, is uh, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. One was originally the queen of part of Spain, the other was Frederick was the king of the other part of Spain, and they married each other to unite the Spain into a single kingdom. This is a common cause of dual monarchies or diarchies, in, particularly in, in early modern Europe, which was basically two monarch, already powerful monarchs marrying each other to unite their states into a single more powerful entity. Modern Andorra and Swaziland, Swaziland is a small state in, in southern Africa, are also diarchs, diarchies, so it, diarchy still does exist today. Relatively rare in history, though, but still an interesting one to, to note. Uh, next category of, of oligarchy I want to talk about is the single-party state. This is a relatively recent phenomenon, basically dating to the 19th century, late 19th century, but it was very popular during the early to mid-20th century and still exists today in a number of places. So a single-party state is where you, a single political party forms a government and no other political parties are allowed to run candidates for election. So sometimes they still hold elections in single-party states. They did this, for example, in, in the Soviet Union, but only the governing parties are allowed to run candidates, and so you might have a ballot with only one candidate on it, which is not really much point. And other times they don't hold elections at all in single-party states. But the key thing about a single-party state is that um, often, especially if it's a true ol- oligarchy, there's no single one all-powerful ruler who controls the government. Its government is controlled by a small elite that exists within the political party, so a small top echelon of the political party, and they're associated, you know, cadres and uh, civil servants and so on. Sometimes small opposition parties or subsidiary coalition parties are permitted to exist, but they're all, uh, of no particular significance to the uh, actual governance of the, the country. 19th century Liberia, Liberia is a small country in Africa, uh, was perhaps the first example of a single party state because it was dominated by a single party for like 80 years or something like that. But there are lots of examples in the 20th century, including a lot of nationalist, fascist or socialist regimes. So for example, Nazi Germany was a single party state, uh, most communist countries are single party states, Italy under um, Mussolini is a single party state, many African and uh, Latin American and Southeast Asian countries after independence were single party states to various degrees. So a single party state's a very broad category because you can also have dictatorships which are single party states because you can have a dictator who establishes a a political party to sort of augment or assist his rule. In this particular, uh, the reason I've categorized the single party state as an oligarchy is is to just highlight the states where it's 
they are not ruled by a single dictator, but are ruled by a political party, so a small elite at the top of the political party. A good example of this would be contemporary China, which is controlled by the Communist Party, but there's no single... I mean, they, they have a single headmost leader, but it, they're not completely in control, and they can be deposed or replaced, uh, replaced every so often nowadays. Vietnam would be another example. So, so it's really the political party and a small elite within that that control the state, not a single individual. So there are a few of those existing today. Uh, I, I mentioned Vietnam and China. There's also Turkmenistan, Syria, Laos, and uh, Cuba, a single-party states. Much more common nowadays, though, is the, the next and final subcategory of oligarchy, which I'll talk about, is the dominant party state. Obviously quite similar to a single-party state. Basically, a dominant party state is a nominally democratic country that has multiple political parties and regular elections. So in a dominant party state, you have to have multiple legal political parties, and they have to be regular elections. But they do not have to be fair elections, which is a key thing. So in a dominant party state, there are various laws or practices, so they could be de jure or de facto, which prevent the opposition parties from actually obtaining political power, actually exercising very much influence in the governance of the country. So the opposition parties still exist, they are still legal, and they're still, you know, they can be significant in size, not like the, the tiny irrelevant ones that sometimes exist in a single party state. And they can sometimes get, you know, a decent chunk of the votes, 20-30%, but they'll never win the election, and they'll never exercise a significant amount of power. They can exercise a bit of power, you know, they can introduce a bill in parliament every now and again or whatever, but they never really get in control of the country. So, dominant party states a step down, a step towards democracy from a single party state, but it's still not a full representative democracy because it's not completely fair and free and so on. This is very common throughout the 20th century. It's still probably the most common form of government in the world today. As I said, most governments are now de jure, that is, by law, democracies, republics, specifically, but in practice there's often a dominant political party. This is the form of government that exists in Russia nowadays, and so that's why Putin gets a lot of, of criticism even within Russia, because his party, uh, I think it's United Russia, ex really dominates the political system, but there are still other political parties that, that get a fair number of votes, and perhaps soon elections, uh, there'll be enough pressure so that the dominant party state actually becomes a, a, a real democracy. Many Latin American countries in the late 19th and 20th centuries, and also various African and Asian countries throughout the 20th century following their independence, were dominant party states where you had, act you had theoretical elections, but uh, in practice one party dominated. The Kuomintang in, or Kuomintang, have you pronounce it, in Taiwan, in Taiwan throughout most of the 20th century, uh, up until a few a couple of decades ago, was a dominant party system. The People's Action Party in Singapore is a, is a really good example of that, which still exists, which still governs Singapore today. So you have elections in Singapore. I think relatively fair, actually, for, based on external observers, but still, it's dominated by the People's Action Party. No other political parties are completely taken seriously. Uh, the Revolutionary Institutional Party in Mexico, the name's not really that important, but Mexico was dominated by a single party for 60 years or so. Only around 2000 did another party win the election. And the Indian National Congress from 46 to 77, following independence, that was the party that was associated with Gandhi, and he was so influential that his party continued to win all elections and dominate the country until the, the late 70s. So, dominant party state is a very important uh, category to be aware of. Huh. So, having now discussed oligarchies, I'll now move on to monarchies. Now, just a note, monarchies are generally classified as autocracies, because they are. They're sort of self-drive power from a single individual, but they're, I think, distinct and important enough to, to warrant their own category of their own. Uh, so there are two basic forms of monarchy. There's an absolute monarchy and a constitutional monarchy. There's another, th a third category I've put in here, which is sort of a transitional or a medium category between the two, which I've called enlightened absolutism, or also called enlightened despotism or an enlightened monarch. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. 
So, but I'll start with an absolute monarchy. In an absolute monarchy, the monarch exercises ultimate governing authority as a head of the state and government. His or her powers are not limited by constitution or by law or by other parties. They really dominate the government and they can do whatever they like or almost whatever they like. They have a very large amount of power. It's basically like whatever the sovereign goes, whatever the sovereign says, that, that goes. There's no constitution or other or political parties or anything else limiting what they can do. In practice, there are always some limitations on power, but so this is sort of an, an abstraction, as most of these categories that I'm talking about are. Examples of this include, include Tsarist Russia before the revolution, in, uh, Imperial China, once again before their revolution, the Roman Empire, many ancient and medieval kingdoms throughout the world, uh, and... So, yeah, this is a very common form of government, especially in the ancient world. Uh, pretty much the only form of government uh, was, was the absolute monarchy. There are very few of these that still exist in the world today. Nepal, Tonga, and Bhutan, and, which are all relatively small states. Until recently, these were absolute monarchies. Uh, recently, they've moved into a more democratic correction. Currently, there are only four absolute monarchies which still exist in the world. They are Brunei, Oman, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, all of which are... All of them are Muslim states. Brunei is in um, is near Malaysia. It's in Southeast Asia. Oman, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia are all in the Middle East. And they're all relatively small, except for Saudi Arabia. So, so Saudi Arabia is perhaps the best example of a current absolute monarchy. The royal family still controls that and has a very large degree of power there maintained by their oil revenues. All of these are also oil-rich states, which is why their absolute monarchs have been able to retain power and not been overthrown. So the next category that I want to talk about, enlightened absolutism or enlightened monarch, is it's controversial whether this counts as a category because it's quite historically specific. It basically refers to an absolute monarch who has embraced the principles of the Enlightenment and so emphasizes rationality and a sort of fair, equal treatment of subjects and religious toleration, freedom of speech or a degree of freedom of speech, right to private property, fostering of the arts and education and so on. So different leaders throughout history have, have been enlightened by this category of you know fostering arts and industry and toleration and so on to various degrees. Some Roman emperors were like this, some um, Chinese rulers were like this. But specifically, the category of enlightened absolutism refers to a bunch of rulers in around 18th century Europe who embraced enlightenment principles. But most of these kings and queens uh, were in Prussia, France, Austria, Russia, and Sweden. Uh, there are specific monarchs that are associated with them. I won't go through their names. But uh, this is an interesting category. It's often sort of conflated with a um, benign dictatorship, although it's not exactly the same thing. It's it's legal and absolute monarch. who still has a lot of power, but they they don't abuse their power, and particularly they have embraced you know toleration and other rationalist enlightened principles. The final type of monarchy is the constitutional monarchy, which is sort of common in the world today. Well, there's a few of them. There used to be many more. A constitutional monarchy is where there is a monarch who is legally the head of state, but they act within the parameters of the constitution, be it a written or a customary constitution, so it doesn't have to be written down. Constitutional monarch does not have complete power, so sometimes they have a, some power, and but often, increasingly nowadays, they really have no power at all. They only have formal powers, or um, they're a formality, they're a figurehead, basically. Historically, though, say in 19th century, in the 19th century or even 18th century, the constitutional monarchs did actually have power, say in, in Germany during the German Empire, or uh, the 19th century French empires as well, and the, the United Kingdom, say, during the 18th century, as they were moving toward constitutional monarchy, the monarch did actually have some degree of power, but they didn't have complete power. They were constrained by parliament and other uh, figures that existed. Uh, Monday, Thailand, Malaysia, Spain, Japan, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, and the UK, and other Commonwealth countries are all constitutional monarchies. In addition to those, you've got the ex-Commonwealth countries, so basically that's Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand... South Africa used to be, but uh, not anymore. Constitutional monarchy used to be more common, but in many cases the, it's been replaced by uh, a republic. Okay, so the final category that I want to talk about is autocracies. And remember, monarchies can be classified as autocracies, but 
Here I'm going to distinguish them uh, and really put only the, the more extreme modern versions of uh, autocracy in this category. So the first one I'll talk about is a theocracy, a term that's thrown around now and then. How you define a theocracy is a bit, is a bit tricky because a if you ask a theocracy what a theocracy is, it's ruled by their god or sometimes the officials who are divinely guided by their god. If you ask someone who doesn't believe in that religion, or that particular type of the religion, they'll say that a theocracy is just a state governed by some political party, or perhaps a monarch who claims to be guided by God, or sometimes who claims to be a god themselves. So it depends who you ask about what a theocracy is, but basically it's a state that claims to be divinely guided, or perhaps to rule directly, rule directly by God. Coffin degenerate into a monarchy or dictatorship in practice when they, the whole religion thing is just used as a support to maintain legitimacy and power. There are quite a few examples of this throughout history, including ancient Israel, imperial cults, whereby the, the emperor or kings themselves were actually deified sometimes during their life, sometimes after their death, and viewed as demigods and worshipped and sacrificed to and so on. So this occurred in many ancient kingdoms, but especially Roman Egypt. Other examples of theocracies include the, well, the caliphate in general, which is, was a, basically the Muslim, Arab Muslim empire that existed in the around 8th to 10th centuries or to 11th centuries, but especially the first version of that, which was the Rashidun Caliphate, which was perhaps the most um, religiously sincere, you might say, of the, of the caliphates, and still considered legitimate by many modern Muslims. That existed around the 7th, uh, 8th centuries. Calvinist Geneva and various Puritan settlements in the US could also be considered to some degree theocracies because they were run by very staunchly religious uh, leaders, according to the, the Puritan... Uh, Calvinist ideologies. Early Utah as well, which was settled by um, Mormon pioneers, perhaps throughout most of the 19th century until it became sort of more became a state and sort of more incorporated into the mainstream US, could have been considered as a theocracy because it was essentially run by the, the Mormon church. Uh, Taliban Afghanistan as well uh, could be considered a theocracy. As well, interestingly, the Central Tibetan Administration, which is the government in exile of Tibet. Many people don't think of this as a theocracy, but the it's headed by the Dalai Lama, who is a religious leader, and basis his theo um, philosophy and teachings and so on on his religious beliefs, so to some degree it can be considered a theocracy. And the Vatican City, also obviously a theocracy, basically run by the Pope, and contemporary Iran, another example of a theocracy. So there are still a few around today. Okay, next category, military rule. This has been a relatively common occurrence in the 20th century especially, but it's existed all throughout history when a general takes over. Basically, military rule describes a number of related circumstances where political power resides with the military in various forms. Sometimes the military themselves can directly appoint themselves as uh, governors of the country. Sometimes it occurs following a military coup, other times not. Um, sometimes it also just occurs when the military is not technically in control, but highly influential in, and highly um, have a very strong say in what happens in the government. A good example of that would be Japan during World War II. I don't think it was... Yeah, it was not technically a military rule, because you still had the emperor and a few other civilian... Um, civilian uh, people in the government, but the military had a, was very influential and had a couple of positions on the cabinet and so on, so th that would be a good example of a non-de jure but de facto military rule. England under Cromwell during the 17th century, during the English Revolution, is another example because Cromwell was a military ruler. That's perhaps one of the first examples of a military rule in history which did not become a, a monarch, because usually earlier on, you know, many times throughout history, uh, a military ruler or general has taken over a state or whatever, but generally they'll pronounce themselves a prince or a king or something like that. Cromwell was one of the first cases, well, at least that I know of, that he didn't do that. He, he maintained a quasi-Republican stance, I suppose, but uh, was in practice military dictatorship. There are only a few existing military rule, uh, military dictatorships or states that are under military rule at the moment, including Egypt, uh, following the 
the revolution there in relation to the Abbas ring. Fiji and the Maldives have also had recent military coups. Myanmar, also known as Burma, was a military, uh, was a state under military rule for a long time until I think around 2010-11, where they've technically the military's given up power, although once again the extent to which that's true in practice is, is questionable. In, in a state under military rule, it could be a military junta, spelt J-U. NTA, which is in control, which is like a committee of military officers governs the country, or it could be a single military, a single dictator who's is in control. So once again, it can be sort of an aristocracy, or, or as a military rule state can be more of an oligarchy, or can be more of a, an autocracy sort of situation, depending on whether it's ruled by one or many. Okay, second last category, a dictatorship. This is when a single individual, the dictator, generally or unconstrained by law or constitutions or other political and social factors, dominates the state. So. It's basically the same as a monarchy, except they don't crown themselves as a monarch and they don't claim that sense of legitimacy. I mean, it's basically the same except for title, really. It's it's more recent because in, in, in the past, if someone attained a, that degree of power, they would just call themselves a king or a prince or something. Around the 20th century, they tended not to do that and just call themselves dictators. Maybe they don't call themselves that, but that's effectively what they were. So this was very common in Europe throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You know, Hitler, Mussolini, Franco in Spain, and many other countries were ruled by dictators. Kim Il-sung and his descendants in Korea are good examples of dictators. They very much dominated the state. There are a couple of others who still exist today. Muammar al-Gaddafi in Libya, who was recently overthrown, but he was a good example of a dictator. There was also Castro, who was sort of handed over power to his brother in Cuba, but he was a dictator for a long time. And many others in the third world, fascist and communist countries, have also been dictators at various times throughout the 20th century. We'll talk more about fascism and communism in a second. Now, dictatorship can be quite stable if the dictator is competent, but, if but there are also obviously um, legitimacy issues there. Final category that I'll talk about, so the subcategory of autocracy, is a totalitarian state. Now, this is a very modern phenomenon. It really only dates to the mid-20th century. A totalitarian state is one that a totalitarian state recognises no limits to its authority at all and strives to regulate every aspect of private and public life wherever feasible or possible. So this is more than just a dictatorship. This is more than just where you have a, a, a very powerful government or a government that has no that does not allow elections and so on. This is where the government goes just beyond that and tries to control every aspect of life. So generally you have state control of media, a single political party, constant all-encompassing propaganda, widespread political repression, a personality cult of the leader or, or pushing of their ideology through the propaganda, control over the economy as well, directing what they want to, to be achieved in that sense, severe restriction of speech, mass surveillance, widespread use of terror. It's called totalitarian because it's very totalistic. It's con- trying to control everything, not just, not just maintain their political power. Basically, the only examples of totalitarian states are fascist and communist states. Few states have managed to really fully develop the totalitarian ideal that perhaps they... Um, aspired to, because it requires a, a great deal of power and uh, wealth, in a sense. That's why it's a 20th century phenomenon, because before that, it, the state just lacked the capability, technologically and economically, to exercise that intensive degree of control over everything. And so a few states have been able to do it effectively. Perhaps uh, some of the most effective totalitarian states would be Nazi Germany, uh, the Soviet Union, and Communist China uh, until they, they started to reform in the 1970s. Communist China is a good case, because Currently, communist China is not a dictatorship because it's not dominated by a single individual. It, it's, it's, it's still nominally communist, which means it still calls itself communist, but in practice it's moving away from that. In practice, I think it would be best to call it a single-party state because it's, um, it's not a dominant party state because they don't hold f- uh, fair elections, they don't call themselves a democracy, but it's controlled by a single political party, the Communist Party. Not a dictatorship because it's not dominated by a single individual, as I said. It's also no longer totalitarian because it... Although it still does a lot of propaganda and still controls parts of the economy, it's no no, it's no longer nearly as restrictive as free of free speech 
or uh, as all-encompassing in its propaganda or as um, intensive in its control of the economy as it used to be under Mao in the 60s and 70s and so on. So China is a really good example of a, a state where this sort of classification can be useful because it, it's, it, it's helpful to understand what it is and what it is not. There's no real totalitarian state that exists uh, in the world today except for North Korea. That's probably the only totalitarian state that currently exists. Cuba, maybe you could call it totalitarian, but it's not quite as much... Uh, just to emphasize another distinction, a totalitarian regime doesn't have to be a dictatorship. It often is, because there's a personality cult among, um, uh, associated with the single leader. It could be Stalin or Hitler or Mao or whoever. But it can also be a single-party state. So an example of this might be the, uh, the Soviet Union after, after Lenin and Stalin. After that point, it was sort of moved away from dictatorship to becoming more of a single-party state ruled by a, a committee of the leading communists, not a single individual among them. Um, but it was still totalitarian because there was still a lot of restriction of speech and domination of the economy and so on. So a totalitarian doesn't have to be a dictatorship, but often is. That's perhaps a, a good um, illustration of how these categories can overlap with each other because you can have a, a military rule, which is also a dictatorship, uh, which may or may not be totalitarian depending on how much it tries to influence society and so on. And uh, theocracies are often, often also totalitarian to some degree, although... In the case like Taliban, uh, Afghanistan, they really lack the power to be properly totalitarian. Anyway, so that's uh, all the categories I want to talk about in this episode. A bit longer than I expected, but there are quite a lot to go through. Hope you find this useful in sort of understanding the different ways that governments can be organized and and, uh, in in distinguishing different governments in history and in the present world from each other and using labels sort of more precise to be able to understand the the nuanced interactions of, of power within and between countries. I'll be doing more political science episodes in the future. So, until next time, goodbye.